So let's sing number 483. Welcome you all again. It's sure good to see all of you. I'm glad that you made your way here. We do have people who are already traveling, and we have folks who are making their holiday plans. And I hope everybody does have a very good Thanksgiving. We are called to be thankful people, and that is essential to biblical Christianity that we are thankful people, regardless of our particular position or station in life, we are still called to be thankful, especially thankful to God. I, I actually like the Thanksgiving holiday. It's one of the few holidays that I, I'm all right with. It is a uniquely American holiday, but it is a holiday that has a long, rich history within the American governance and the American populace. In fact, a couple of years ago, I made a YouTube video where I just read a few of the Thanksgiving proclamations 
that came from the early Congress and came from the pen of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, John Adams, and others. And in fact, I made a PDF available of all those different proclamations because the early leaders of our country understood that mankind had an obligation to be grateful to a sovereign God. And if he is indeed sovereign, if he is in charge of what's happening here on the planet, then we ought to glorify him and praise and worship him and thank him regardless of our circumstances. Far too often, people think that their thankfulness ought to be dependent on their situation. If things are going good for me, I'll be thankful. If things are going rough for me, well, then I'm not going to feel very thankful. I'm going to feel resentful. But the truth is, if God is indeed sovereign and in charge of everything, then whatever you're going through at this moment, regardless of how you view it or how other people view it, whatever you're going through is exactly what God has destined that you would go through for your good and for his ultimate glory, and therefore you ought to be thankful to him. So I like Thanksgiving. I like the idea that even in this rather God-forsaken world, even in this present evil age, even in this sort of anti-Christian environment that we live in, I'm thankful that everybody stops one day in November and just ponders the fact that thankfulness ought to be part of our character. And and really, wouldn't you rather be around thankful people than bitter people? Bitter people get old real quickly. Well, I guess I shouldn't say get old real quickly because I've gotten old real quickly. <laughs> but bitter people are not any fun to be around. Thankful people are a joy to be around. So I hope you continue to be thankful people. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this morning we are going to address a rather controversial topic. I don't know how many of you spend any time looking at the polls. I don't know how politically oriented you are. But there's a poll out right now that I find incredibly interesting that actually applies to what we're looking at here. The poll says that roughly 51% of all Americans approve of Barack Obama, our current sitting president. He has a high approval rate right now. But the very same poll says that people do not agree with his policies. Whenever the policy end of it comes up, people disagree by and large, they disagree. Whether it's Obamacare or whether it's TPP or whether they just say, I don't agree with these policies, but I like him. And I tried to figure out how do you explain this discrepancy? And the discrepancy, I think, is in how the questions were asked. Because we don't have any evidence within those polls of how they posed the question. They may have said, what do you think of Barack Obama as a person? In which case, his ratings would be very high. 
They may have said, what do you think of these policies while eliminating the person from the policies? And then the ratings were very low. What's missing in the equation is the question. And that's the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 11. It is a controversial verse. There are lots and lots of commentaries written about it. And I think it's because we don't have the original letter that was sent by Chloe to Paul where Chloe asked questions about the things that were going on in the church in Corinth. And if we knew what the questions were that Paul was answering, then we would understand the answers more clearly. So instead, we have to put on our detective hats, and we have to kind of figure out contextually and exegetically, we have to take the time to sort through what Paul did say And then we can kind of assume what the questions must have been. But we're really coming at it backwards. It would be nice if we had the questions. Because then we could say, here's the question Chloe asked. Here's Paul's answer. And we could understand the brevity of his answer. Because the next part of 1 Corinthians is about women wearing head coverings. And as I look around the room this morning, I don't see a single woman wearing a head covering. Listen to her answer, but we have hair. You know, in some churches, that would not be good enough. In some churches, they say that women have to wear some kind of scarf over their head. In some churches, they say, that no, a woman has to have her head completely covered. In some churches, they say, if a woman puts a small doily on her head, that's adequate. That as long as there's some kind of covering, and as I look around here at the women of GCA this morning, I see no head coverings other than, as Jennifer pointed out, other than your hair. Okay, so you walked in wearing a hat. Okay, fair enough. So what's right? There's a huge controversy here because if Paul properly means to say that the head coverings that the women in Corinth wore are not only a good rule but a universal rule for the church, then every woman in here, save Dawn, is in rebellion. Or if Paul said, well, It's an okay custom for you, but we can't impose your custom on all churches. Then the matter of head covering becomes a matter of freedom of conscience. Mm -hmm. So for me, the whole argument seems to turn on this verse at the very end, verse 16. Go down to verse 16. Because Paul, after having made his argument in favor of head coverings, ends up saying in verse 16, but if anyone is contentious about it, if anyone wants to argue about the whole head covering thing, we have, now this is the NASB translation, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And you can read that a couple of different ways, so the controversy continues. Are you familiar with the word, this is the Greek word, toyutas? Have you heard that word before? Okay, huto, hutas, all those words are just pronouns that point at something. They're what's called demonstrative pronouns. 
if I were to point at Josiah in particular and say, that guy, then I'm using the word hutos, that guy. It's demonstrative of which one I'm pointing at. But this word toyutos, which is a combination of hutos and an intensifier on it, actually means truly this one. So not just this one generally, but this one very specifically. You get that word? Okay, now let me show you where that word shows up in this verse. If anyone is contentious, we have no toihutos practice. And so some of your translations will read, we have no such practice. Because the translation of this toyutas actually is like such a one as this. And it's used that way in other parts of the Bible. And so the translation, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, is a perfectly sound translation. But it also helps us understand what Paul is saying when the translators went with the word other. Either Paul is saying, if you're going to be contentious about it, we have no other practice and either do the churches of God, in which case he's stating a definitive. This is something you have to do. All the churches agree on it, and we have no other practice than head coverings. So cover your head because that's the universal rule within the church. Or he's saying... If anybody decides to be contentious with my defense of head covering, I just want to say that we don't have any rule better than that. We don't have any other custom that I can refer to, and so we really don't have anything other than that, and so it becomes a matter of conscience. And then, of course, the translations that say, if anyone's going to be contentious, we have no such tradition. This is why this word, this is why this little pronoun is so very important. The whole verse turns on that, and the whole argument turns on this verse. I am convinced that Paul is saying, you have a tradition in Corinth. You have a custom in Corinth. And your custom does not in any way act contrarily to what we believe about Christianity. Therefore, it's a perfectly good custom. And he defends the custom in four different ways to show how the custom connects to Christianity at large. And then he says, but if you're going to be contentious about it, if someone comes along and says that head covering rule, Jesus never talked about it, it's not in the law, and so therefore it's just a custom. If anybody's going to argue about it, he says, but we don't have such a custom, and neither do the other churches but it's fine for you. I have a very hard time with the notion for the people who believe that Paul is stating a definitive here. You have to cover your heads. Women have to have a head covering on. That would be very out of character for everything we've read in this letter so far because Paul has already said there's no law. There's no law against me. He's already argued in favor of individual conscience. He's already said, you can eat meat to idols or don't eat it. He's already said, nobody judges me. I don't even judge my own self. 
So it's hard to imagine that Paul could be saying freedom, 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 freedom for 10 chapters and then suddenly say, here's a custom that Jesus never imposed that isn't in the Old Testament anywhere and isn't in the law, but this custom is now imperative on the whole church. That seems very out of character with everything else that he's written in this letter. And therefore, I believe that he's saying, in Corinth, if that's your custom, it's a good custom. I can defend your custom. But if anybody wants to argue about it, I got nothing else. I got nothing to argue about. I've got no such custom and either do the other churches. So that's where I come down on the head covering argument, which ought to make every woman in this place go, okay, good. So let's start at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, last week I said that I think chapter 11, verse 1, remember that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not part of the original text. They are not inspired. They've only been with us for about 500 years. They serve a good purpose so that everybody can find the same piece of text at the same time. But sometimes people get it in their head that because there's a number at the head of a verse, that that means the individual verse can stand by itself. It is a complete idea by itself. And they can ignore the surrounding context because this verse says, for instance, everything we believe about God's sovereignty and God's control and God's absoluteness and God's preeminence in all things and man's lack of being able to will against what God has already determined, people think that they can turn that all upside down by simply saying, well, John 3.16, because they think that one verse out of context is a complete thought, and that complete thought is enough to upend the whole corpus of theology that's in the Bible. So you always have to look at context For the folks who yell John 3.16, I yell back at them, John (laughs) 3.18. Those that don't believe are condemned already. What are you going to do with that? (laughs) Context matters. And so I argue that chapter 11, verse 1, actually belongs at the end of chapter 10. Be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ, actually fits with just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but seeking the profit of the many that they may be saved. So be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. So I would actually start chapter 11 at verse 2. Now verse 2 stands in rather direct contrast to verse 17. Look at the difference between these. In verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he's saying, in this thing, in what I'm about to talk about, I praise you. You've understood what I taught, and you're holding to the traditions, the customs. Fair enough. But then you look at verse 17 and it says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So the first part of this chapter is Paul saying, I agree with you. I'm in agreement. The head covering thing, the custom in Corinth, I'm in agreement with you. 
But when Paul starts talking about the way they gather, the way they meet, the way that they're particularly taking the Lord's Supper, at that point he says, I have no agreement with you on that. I'm against you on that. So we'll take up the second half of the chapter next week. Today we'll just talk about head covering. I praise you because you remember me in everything. And you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This means that Paul not only taught them sound doctrine, the didaskalos, the good teaching that he brought to them, but he also taught them customs that were customs within the church. This is how the church ought to act. This is how the church ought to behave itself. And apparently the people in Corinth to some degree, are attempting to keep some of those traditions, some of those customs, and Paul gives them credit for that. Now, Corinth, as we've talked many times, is a Greco-Roman city. And being a Greco-Roman city, most of their customs as a city come from Greek culture. And in Greek culture, it was very common for women to cover their heads. If they went out, they would cover their heads. Now, don't think necessarily about the head coverings that you see in the Middle East now, women walking around with burqas, where you only see them through the slit where their eye hole is. That is a head covering. That is a complete head covering. And Paul is going to use a word that means complete head covering. But then he also says, that a woman's hair is her covering. He uses a different word for it. So he's not necessarily talking about complete and utter head covering. And in Greek society, a woman would cover her head when she went out publicly, but it wasn't a complete burqa-style head covering. And so it was natural for the women in Corinth to be wearing a head covering when they went to church. If they were going out at all, they'd cover their heads. Now, in the Old Testament, among the Jews, the rule was that men would cover their heads when they would pray, when they would prophesy. You can see it to this very day. If you see the films of the men at the Wailing Wall, when they prepare to pray, they cover their heads with their prayer shawls. Even when they're not covered with their shawls, they have their yarmulke on their head to remind them of God's presence and his headship over them at all times. Okay, well, that's the Jewish reckoning of males covering their head, and then women, when they would pray or prophesy, would likewise cover their heads. So that seems to be the question. What about the women And what about the men? And what should be the differences? And when they pray in Corinth, should they cover their heads? Should the men cover their heads? That's the Jewish rule. But here, according to our Greco-Roman tradition, the men don't cover their heads, but the women do. And it's not necessarily the women cover their heads when they're in church. What Paul writes about is they have to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy. When they're speaking forward the word of God or when they're praying, women should cover their heads. So we don't know exactly what the question was. We don't know exactly why Paul is going to go into this kind of detail. But we know that it's different than the Jewish tradition. And they're asking him apparently if it's okay. This is what we're doing. Is it all right? 
And Paul's answer is, seems to be. I can defend it. I can see how it comports to Christianity. And none of what you're doing in the head covering issue is in any way contrary to Christianity. So, so I say, yeah. But if you're contentious, we've got no such rule in the other churches. So you work it out. And then after he settles that, he says, but on this issue, I'm really going to straighten you out. In fact, at the end of the chapter, he says, and the rest of it I'm going to deal with when I get here. I'm going to put more stuff in order when I come to see you next time because the way you're meeting is so inappropriate. The way you're taking the Lord's Supper is so inappropriate. But for the head coverings, yeah, okay. (laughs) So let's read it now that you've kind of got some context for it. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So he starts out by putting everything in proper order. It's not that men are any better than women, the same way that God is not better than Jesus. He's not talking about an ontological headship where God is superior in essence to Christ. Christ and God are both parts of the Godhead, and they are co-equal in that respect. But throughout the Bible, we see God the Father assigning the Son certain tasks. The Son, since before the foundation of the world, was designated as the Lamb slain. So the Father is the one who is choosing people and then giving those people to his Son, which is why Jesus could say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So there's order to it. Even though they are equals, there's order. And so then likewise, even though there is an equality between men and women, where we're not saying that women are inherently inferior to men, still there is an order to the church. And as long as everybody stays within their order, then the church operates as it's supposed to. And there's much less friction and no arguing. More importantly, there is headship all the way down the line. God is the head over Christ. Christ is the head over men. And men are the head over women. And that's the order that Paul lays out. Now, that becomes the basis for his argument about head coverings. That the head covering serves as a way of, again, willingly subjecting yourself to humility, recognizing that there is headship over you. And so where women would perhaps contend and say, well, I'm not going to wear any kind of head covering, Paul's argument is the wearing of the head covering shows that you recognize the male headship over you, but before you think that's not fair, the male has the headship of Christ over him. So there's headship over everybody. Get the picture? Because that's I'm really stressing this because it's going to help you understand what Paul's about to say. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has, the NASB adds the word something, but it actually says every man who has on his head 
So any man who covers his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, let me show you where he would get that because he's actually making a direct reference to the Old Testament. Somebody look up 2 Samuel 15.30. Tom, do that. 2 Samuel 15.30. And somebody else look up Jeremiah 14.3. You want to do that for us, Thaddeus? Sure. Okay, Thaddeus is going to look up Jeremiah 14.3. These are a couple of, of examples out of the Old Testament where the covering of the head is a sign of shame, is a sign of either hiding or repentance or shame. And so Paul can say, based on that, any man who covers his head is shaming his head. For instance, when David is running from his son, he's running from Absalom, then we read uh, 2 Samuel 15.30. So Tom's going to read it for us. But first, Tom is going to stand up. And he's going to pick up his iPad and he's going to read really loudly so that you all can hear him as he speaks. <laughs> but David went up from the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. So David and his men ascended Mount Olivet where Christ would later preach, and they went up weeping and mourning, and in that state it was appropriate that they would cover their heads. So Paul knows this. Jeremiah 14.3, you know the rule. <laughs> you know, people with paper Bibles are already there. <laughs> I just want to point that out. There go. Okay. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the to the Christians and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been up to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads. So when they came back and didn't have water, part of their repentance for not bringing back water was they covered their heads in shame, and they were confounded. So Paul is able to say that every man who covers his head while he's praying or prophesying is shaming his head because if Christ is the direct head over you and you have direct communication to him, then you should uncover your head because you're not ashamed. You're not confounded. You're praying to the one who has saved you. So Paul says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as someone whose head is shaved. Okay, well, that takes you back to Numbers 5. Back in Numbers 5, there is a, a prolonged passage about what men can do if they are concerned about their wife, if they think that their wife hasn't been faithful or loyal. They can take their wife to the priest. The priest will make a particular concoction that even uh, includes dust off the floor of the temple. And then after he's made that concoction, he gives it to the woman, and the woman takes a vow of her own faithfulness to her husband and drinks that drink. And if she's being honest, if she's been faithful, then the concoction won't hurt her. But because the vow that she takes is the vow of a curse, if she has been unfaithful, then her belly swells and it says that her hips are affected by it. And so 
the priest, the husband, everybody will know by the physical manifestations that she's lying. She has not been faithful. And if that's the case, her head is shaved. Her head is uncovered publicly. So if a woman is going about publicly with her head uncovered and unshaved, even back in the book of Numbers, that is a sign of shame. So Paul, again, is referencing exactly what the Bible says in the Old Testament. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, then let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful, For a woman to have her hair cut off, which we now know it is, it's disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair. So since it is disgraceful for her to have her hair cut off and her head be shaved, therefore let her cover her head so that she's not ashamed, so that she's not in any way viewed by other people as a woman who has gone through the are you faithful thing. She can be confident in her relationship with the body and with Christ and with her male headship. So verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now let's talk about this word glory for a moment, because Paul uses this word doxa in the Greek. He uses it a wide variety of ways. Uh, The most obvious is when he's, talking in Romans, and he's talking about the difference of the brightness of different stars. And he calls that their glory. The glory of one star is different than the glory of another star. Doxa, at its essence, means what makes a thing what it is. And so we can talk about the glory of God. We can talk about his otherness and his singularity because his glory, his essence, what he truly is, is so high and so different than the glory of a man or the glory of a woman. So what it really essentially is saying here is that whereas the man is what he is because of God, that the woman is in her essence what she is and therefore under the headship of the man that God has placed over her. Verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For a man to be a complete man, for a man to be everything that a man is designed to be, the essence of that man should be under the headship of Christ. Any man who is not under the headship of Christ is a lesser man and is going to be judged. If you get that equation, you can understand how Paul is saying, and any woman, to be a full and complete woman, should be under the headship of a man who is under the headship of Christ. So the man who is under the headship of Christ is then able to be a whole man, a complete man, to the woman he's been given. See how the relationship works? Be honest, women. Not that I think you're inherently dishonest but good start, good start. <laughs> I thought so be honest women 
Wouldn't you rather be under a man who knows he's under the headship of God? Most women would. Even women who don't necessarily believe would rather have a man who has a moral center than a man who has no moral compass. And where does that sense of morality come from? Well, ultimately from God. Women would rather, especially Christian women, would rather have a man who knows that he's under Christ's headship because not only is he going to treat you well, not only is he going to provide for you and take care of you, but at any point that he fails in the duty to do that, he's answerable to Christ. Well, women would want that. And so Paul creates that dynamic. And he argues it this way, verse 8. For the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. Again, Paul's going back to the Old Testament, to the Genesis account. And man, Adam, was made by God out of the dust of the ground. Which means that Adam, most likely, did not have a belly button. Okay, think about that. Um, Out of the dust of the ground, Adam was formed. But then Adam was, according to the Genesis account which Jesus agrees with. Jesus gives credibility to the Genesis account. So even though the modern-day scientists will tell us, well, that's, that's figurative language. You can't necessarily assume that that's literal. Jesus said it was literal. So therefore, God made man out of the dust of the ground, put the man to sleep after the man had named all the animals and after no animal was found that was a suitable mate for the man. After God made it very clear that man could not be mate to any of the animals, he then put the man to sleep, took a rib out of his side and created woman from the man. And so that's what Paul is arguing here. Man did not originate from the woman. The woman originated from the man. That being the case, male headship over the woman. For indeed, verse 9, for indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman was created for man's sake. In the King James Version of the early couple of chapters of Genesis, The language that has kind of disappeared from our modern lexicon, we no longer use the word meat as meaning appropriate. If we were going to talk about something that was appropriate in Old English, we would say that that was meat for us or for the situation. And so what the Bible says is that God among the animals, couldn't find a helper that was appropriate for man. So he made the woman for man, and she is referred to as a help meet for Adam, which makes people say women are a help meet, which the Bible does not say. It says it's a help appropriate or meet for the man. So God made a woman who was set up for, whose purpose was to help man. And so Paul argues that, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head, and then this very peculiar phrase, because of the angels. Okay, well, go online this afternoon 
Because I'm sure you have nothing to do this afternoon. I'm sure you're just killing time this afternoon. Go online and look up how many varieties of interpretation there are of that online. Because there are hundreds. And I've culled through them looking for the most obvious or most logical reference. And the end of it is, I don't know. It's a strange phrase. Here's what it might mean. Because Paul's been referencing the book of Genesis, he might still be referencing the book of Genesis where the sons of God, the angels, the fallen angels, came down and cohabitated with women and produced a a race of giants, which according to the apocryphal book of uh, Enoch, the reason for the flood was for the killing of these hybrid creatures. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's, that was the early belief. It may also mean because of the pastors, because the pastors are referred to as the messengers, the messengers of God. And in the first part of the book of Revelation, Jesus has the seven stars in his hands, which he refers to as the seven angels of the seven churches. And most people agree that that means to the messengers of those seven churches. Remember when Barney Johnson was here last time and he tried to give me a compliment? He referred to me as the angel of this church. And my daughter immediately went, he's no angel. You know, but no, I don't think you said that, but I think I accredited that to you. You're better trained than that. Paul might be saying that. He might be saying, within the church, you have a a bishop of the church, an overseer of the church, who's trying to keep things in order and have them done in an orderly fashion according to the customs. And so women ought to have a covering, a sign of headship on them because of the leadership, because of the angels, the messengers. It may also mean that the angels are watching and seeking to look into these things. I think even Peter uses that language, that the the angels are looking into these things that we're doing here on earth. And so since the angels are watching and are often referred to as watchers, that the women ought to realize that there is an angelic host that are paying attention to how they're living and what they're doing. And therefore, so as not to give any offense to the angels, you ought to have covering on your head so you're in your proper place within the church. Which of those is right? I don't know. I got no clue. This is why I wish I had the question. This is why I think the question would help us understand the answer. So the whole question of the angels watching becomes an inspiration to act right, to be right, to be in your proper place, to humble yourself, to willingly submit yourself to the authority of God in Christ and the authority that he has placed over you in male headship because in some way the angels are watching. Mm -hmm. Therefore, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. There's the equality. A moment ago, he said that the man had authority over the woman, and I said in the same way, where God has authority over Christ, God is not superior to Christ. Same idea, though the man has authority over the woman, the man is not better than the woman. So now Paul is going to argue in favor of the women. However, verse 11, however, in the Lord... 
There is neither woman independent of man, nor is there man independent of the woman. For as the woman originates from the man, even though it's true that the woman came from the man's rib out of the side of the man, so also man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So there's the equality, even though it's true that women as a gender group, even though gender is becoming more fluid in our society, (laughs) biblically, the gender of women came from the gender of men. But then, right away, Eve has a baby and produces a male child. So men come from the woman. So there is equality between the two genders. And by the way, those genders are decided by God. And it doesn't matter how many people. I got to tell you this story. I had to call my daughter from the parking lot to tell her. I told you that week after next, I'm having a dilation done on my esophagus. I have that done about once a year. I call it rotorootering my throat. And while I was there seeing the doctor, getting onto the schedule, I went downstairs to the surgical center and filled out the paperwork that I had to fill out. And I missed one of the boxes that I was supposed to check. And it was the, the box that identified me as a particular race and a particular gender. And the nurse was looking at my paperwork and saw that I missed that box. And she said to me, and this is a quote. Do you consider yourself a male white man? (laughs) And I said, no. I consider myself a six-foot-five black basketball player. (laughs) (laughs) Write that down. Because they're going to be really surprised when I walk in. Do you consider yourself a white male person? I said, yeah. And then she said, white Caucasian? I said, yeah, I think my people come from the Caucasus Mountains. I'd have to say, yeah, white Caucasian, that's that's the one, sure enough. And she said, you'd be surprised how many people scratch through Caucasian and agree to white. I said, yes, I would be surprised. So anyway, as gender is becoming more fluid... As apparently you can say that you're anything you want to say. Whatever you think. No, I'm a 1993 deer tractor. I mean, I'm, apparently you can say you're anything these days. But gender was determined by God. Amen. And my point is, if it's God who determined gender, it's also God who can determine where those genders reside in his overall plan. <coughs> It's still all up to God. And so he said, the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So if you don't like the idea of male headship, and if you don't like the idea of Christ having headship over the man, then your argument's not with me. I didn't make it up. This has been around for 2,000 years. And Paul says it originated back in Eden with God. So if you don't like it, take it up with God. But don't argue with me. Please don't argue with me. I'm begging you, don't argue with me. (laughs) 
Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, we came across that phrase last week, that judge for yourself phrase. What Paul is saying is discern for yourself. Work it out for yourself. Within your church, within your community, within Corinth, is it appropriate for a woman to wear a head covering or not? Judge that for yourselves. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then he says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory, the essence of who she is. So let's talk about that statement for a moment. Because Linda Joes sent me a link a while back. And she's already chuckling about it back there. She sent me a link to a particular preacher who felt that he understood what that phrase Does not even nature itself teach you this? He seemed to think he had uncovered the meaning of that. So let me tell you what his idea was, and you can agree or disagree with it. I'm not going to make it quite as graphic as he made it. I will circumlocute a few terms that he was comfortable with, but I will tell you, in essence, what he said. Are you familiar with the Hippocratic Oath? Okay. Hippocrates lived about 400 years before Jesus was on the planet. He's known as the father of modern medicine, and doctors to this day take the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath starts with, first, do no harm. And that goes all the way back to Hippocrates. So this preacher's notion was, well, since Hippocrates had only been around for about 400 years, and since his teaching was so widespread and well-known within the Greco-Roman world, that perhaps Paul was familiar with the basic natural rules that had been laid out by Hippocrates. Now, one of those rules that Hippocrates laid out was that sexual capability was determined by length of hair. And that a man was less virile if he had long hair. I think fertile And less fertile if he had long hair. Because he believed that the sort of storage center of sexuality had to do with the length of hair. And so if a man had long hair, he was sort of keeping that sexuality to himself. But if he had shorter hair and was with a woman who had longer hair, her longer hair made her more fertile, and therefore a shorter-haired male going into a longer-haired woman would more often result in pregnancy. That was the theory. That was the thought. So this preacher believed that Paul was saying, doesn't even nature prove that? Because that was the common thinking of the time that when men had long hair, they were probably less able to be a father. Whereas women with long hair were much more likely to become a mother. Now, I read it slightly differently. (laughs) I believe, and I'm living proof of it, 
that even the nature that God has built into human beings, going all the way back to Elisha, is that men lose their hair and their heads become uncovered over time. Whereas women, by and large, just don't. They retain their hair. Their hair is a natural covering for them, whereas it is not a natural covering for men. So Paul could say, even nature shows this. If the natural covering that God has designed for women is their hair, well then men, if they were designed for a covering, would have the same propensity to grow hair. But men, as I stand here proving at this very moment, don't grow more hair as they get older. They grow less hair. But women retain their hair. And so I think that might be what Paul is getting at when he's saying that even nature itself teaches you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. And then for you long-haired men in the room, But if a woman has long hair, it is the glory to her. It is the essence of what she is. It is part of her femininity. It is part of her womanhood that she have long hair. It's the essence of who she is, and it's how you identify her as a woman, which is why back in the 60s and 70s when the hippies first came around, the question that hippies heard all the time, including myself, was, are you a boy or a girl? Because we had long hair, because that's confusing. That's inherently confusing. But you can see that what Paul is saying by it's the glory of her is that he's saying it's the essence of who she is. So what Paul is really arguing about is men not having long hair that looks feminine and womanly because that's not appropriate. But in the Bible, whether we're talking about Samson, whether we're talking about John the Baptist, anybody who took a Nazarite vow... They wouldn't put a razor to their head. They had long hair. So it wasn't the long hair in and of itself that Paul's arguing against. It's the looking like a woman, the essence of a woman, the docks of the glory of a woman. Yes, sir. And men, as they grow older, do grow more hair, but in different places. <laughs> really? Is that where we're going? <laughs> You know, one of the chief frustrations of my life, one of my chief frustrations is that I can no longer grow hair on my head, but I can grow hair on my big toe. I don't need hair on my big toe. I look at my big toe sometimes and I go, why? Why is this working? I want a scientist to figure out what's going on on my big toe and then create a potion never mind (laughs) okay so the woman originates from the man so also the man has birth through the woman all things originate from God judge for yourselves discern for yourselves is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered does not even nature itself teach you That if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is the essence. It is the glory to her. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Okay, now verse 17 says that her hair is a covering. Paul has previously used the word hair covering. But there's a difference between the two words. 
the first word that he used back in verse 6 and 7, catacalupto. And that means to cover, but it also means to completely cover. It is what we think of when we think of burkas or that kind of thing. That it is appropriate for a woman to have a complete covering over her head. But then when he says that her hair is a covering for her, he uses the word peribolion. The point is, Paul is using two different words here. When he refers to a woman's hair, he actually uses a word that means a vesture or a garment, as opposed to the word that means covering her whole head. So her hair, in keeping with this idea that it is the glory, the essence of what makes her feminine and what makes her womanly, is that her hair is a covering on her like a vesture or like a garment. It's not quite the same as the head covering, but he says even nature gives women a natural covering. But, verse 16, but if anyone is inclined to be contentious about this, now that we've laid out the whole argument, now that we know what the biblical basis is for the argument, now that we know what the Christian argument is for it, now that he's made the argument from nature, now that he said it's a perfectly good custom and tradition for you to keep there in Corinth. He says, if anyone's inclined to argue, be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So if you want to argue about it, that's their tradition. And remember now, in that context, remember everything that Paul has written up till now. He's argued about it's okay for me to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, but I won't eat it if it offends my brother. I have freedom. There's nothing against me. Not everything's helpful, not everything's expedient, but there is no law against me. So Paul is taking this attitude of individual conscience, individual conviction, and people following the customs that they are used to. And so he ends the argument about head covering with the exact same argument because Paul's very, very consistent in the things that he is saying here. This is a custom. This is not something that is standard Christianity. It is not the basis of Christianity. It's not anything that we ought to divide over or even argue over. If you walk into a church and the women there have head coverings, that's the custom for that church. I, I travel in a fair amount of churches. And when I walk into a church, I am very, very aware that I'm a guest there. And therefore, if their customs are different than my customs, if the way that they hold the worship service is different than the way we at GCA do it, I adapt to them. Like Paul said, be all things to all men. I adapt to the way they do their service and customs. Unless their service and their custom and their tradition is anti-biblical. I ran into that just a couple of weeks ago. I ran into an anti-biblical custom in a church. When I went to see Alton Pickett a couple of weeks ago, we all know Alton here, we love Alton Pickett, but he invited Tom and I to go hear him preach at two in the afternoon on a Sunday for the retirement service of the preacher at that church. And it was an AME church. Tom and I went to that 
service. Because it was the retirement service of that pastor, they had a lot of things that they did, a lot of presentations and stuff before the actual preaching. Now, Elder Kennedy was there. Elder Pickett's there. But at one point, the woman who was leading the activities invited the elders and preachers that were there for the retirement service to come up and sit on the platform, which is very customary in some churches. If you're an elder and you walk into some churches, they take you straight to the platform. So the woman invited elders to come to the platform. No men got up, even though there were men in the room that I knew, but women made a beeline for that platform, two of them. And then the woman who was conducting the service announced that she was also the pastor right here in Smyrna, this church right up the road. So here are three female pastors, elders, sitting in this church service. At that moment, I knew that it was anti-biblical. Even though I adapted to everything else that they did, when they crossed the line into anti-biblical, it's no longer just a custom. It's now, for lack of a better word, a rebellion against what God had said. God was very clear that leaders within the church, elders, bishops, would be men. It's, it's consistent all the way through. And these women took it upon themselves to present themselves as elders. Well, much to Alton Pickett's credit, when the preaching time came, he didn't go up to the pulpit. He said, I'll stand down here in the aisle with the people and I'll do the teaching. And he stood up with his open Bible and he taught from the aisle rather than from the pulpit. And when I called him that night and said, I think I know why you did that. <laughs> he said, yeah, I couldn't go up on the platform where those women were. The women were in rebellion, rebellion to what the word of God says, let's be clear. And so I, I taught since I was invited to come teach. Uh, I taught, but I couldn't do it from that platform because of it being out of order. So within the church, there is room for customs. There is room for traditions or a way of doing things that is particular to that particular church. Particular to that particular. Could I be more redundant? <laughs> Department of Redundancy Department. The Never mind. There are customs within various different churches. And we, if we're like Paul, have the freedom of conscience to recognize that we are guests in that house and to react accordingly. What we don't have is the freedom to do it wrong, and that's what Paul's going to pick up on next week in the second half of this chapter where he's going to say the way you're taking the Lord's Supper is just wrong, wrong, wrong. In fact, he's going to go so far as to say you're doing it so wrong that people have died in your congregation. People are sick in your congregation because God is judging you for how badly you're doing it. He didn't use that language when it came to head covering. Head covering was an acceptable custom that didn't run contrary to Christianity. How they were taking the Lord's Supper does. And we'll talk about that next week. Questions? Yes, ma'am. I just want to thank you for edifying us. 
Well, you're more than welcome. Tom and I were talking this morning. And I was telling him about an email I got from a fellow who was concerned because his pastor was plagiarizing another pastor. And then I said, yeah, but all I do is plagiarize the Bible. (laughs) That's all I do is teach you what the Bible says. And if that edifies you, that's the work of the Spirit. That's not my job. Thanks anyway. (laughs) Yes, sir. Along those lines, this morning while I was eating breakfast, I was glancing at the text, and I commented, I can hardly wait <laughs> to handle this, and I thank you for the way you handled it. Oh, well, thank you very much. That is kind. Again, just trying to plagiarize the Bible. Any other questions? Although I'm kind of basking in the glow of those compliments. <laughs> And I appreciate that. All right. If that's it, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.